This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 11, Sections 1 through 4. Impiety of attributing a visible form to God. The setting up of idols, a defection from the true God. There are three leading divisions in this chapter. The first contains a refutation of those who ascribe a visible form to God, sections 1 and 2, with an answer to the objection of those who, because it is said that God manifested his presence by certain symbols, use it as a defense of their error, in sections 3 and 4. Various arguments are afterwards adduced, disposing of the trite objection from Gregory's expression that images are the books of the unlearned, sections 5 through 7. The second division of the chapter relates to the origin of idols or images and the adoration of them, as approved by the papists, sections 8 through 10. Their evasion refuted in section 11. The third division treats of the use and abuse of images, section 12, whether it is expedient to have them in Christian churches, section 13. The concluding part contains a refutation of the Second Council of Nice, which very absurdly contends for images in opposition to divine truth and even to the disparagement of the Christian name. Sections 1. God is opposed to idols, that all may know he is the only fit witness to himself. He expressly forbids any attempt to represent him by a bodily shape. 2. Reasons for this prohibition from Moses, Isaiah, and Paul. The complaint of a heathen. It should put the worshippers of idols to shame. 3. Consideration of an objection taken from various passages in Moses. The cherubim and seraphim show that images are not fit to represent divine mysteries. The cherubim belong to the tutelage of the law. Section 4. The materials of which idols are made abundantly refute the fiction of idolaters. Confirmation from Isaiah and others. Absurd precaution of the Greeks. Section 1. As Scripture an accommodation to the rude and gross intellect of man, usually speaks in popular terms, so whenever its object is to discriminate between the true God and false deities, it opposes him in particular to idols. Not that it approves of what is taught more elegantly and subtly by philosophers, but that it may the better expose the folly, nay, madness, of the world in its inquiries after God so long as everyone clings to his own speculations. This exclusive definition, which we uniformly meet with in Scripture, annihilates every deity which men frame for themselves of their own accord, God himself being the only fit witness to himself. Meanwhile, seeing that this brutish stupidity has overspread the globe, men longing after visible forms of God, and so forming deities of wood and stone, silver and gold, or of any other dead and corruptible matter, we must hold it as a first principle, that as often as any form is assigned to God, 
His glory is corrupted by an impious lie. In the law, accordingly, after God had claimed the glory of divinity for himself alone, when he comes to show what kind of worship he approves and rejects, he immediately adds, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. Exodus 20, verse 4. By these words he curbs any licentious attempt we might make to represent him by a visible shape, and briefly enumerates all the forms by which superstition had begun, even long before, to turn his truth into a lie. For we know that the sun was worshipped by the Persian, As many stars as the foolish nations saw in the sky, so many gods they imagined them to be. Then to the Egyptians, every animal was a figure of God. The Greeks again plumed themselves on their superior wisdom in worshiping God under the human form. But God makes no comparison between images, as if one were more and another less befitting. He rejects without exception all shapes and pictures and other symbols by which the superstitious imagine they can bring him near to them. Section 2 This may easily be inferred from the reasons which he annexes to his prohibition. First, it is said in the books of Moses, Deuteronomy 4.15, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves. For ye saw no manner of similitude in the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb, out of the mist of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, etc. We see how plainly God declares against all figures, to make us aware that all longing after such visible shapes is rebellion against him. Of the prophets, it will be sufficient to mention Isaiah, who is the most copious on this subject? Isaiah forty eighteen, forty one seven, twenty nine, forty five nine, and forty six five. In order to show how the majesty of God is defiled by an absurd and indecorous fiction, when he who is incorporeal is assimilated to corporeal matter, he who is invisible to a visible image, he who is a spirit to an inanimate object and he who fills all space to a bit of paltry wood or stone or gold. Paul, too, reasons in the same way. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Acts 17.29 Hence it is manifest that whatever statues are set up or pictures painted to represent God are utterly displeasing to him as a kind of insults to his majesty. And is it strange that the Holy Spirit thunders such responses from heaven when he compels even blind and miserable idolaters to make a similar confession on the earth? Seneca's complaint, as given by Augustine, is well known. He says, The sacred, immortal, and invisible gods they exhibit in the meanest and most ignoble materials, and dress them in the clothing of men and beasts. Some confound the sexes, and form a compound out of different bodies, giving the name of deities to objects, which, if they were met alive, 
would be deemed monsters. Hence again, it is obvious that the defenders of images resort to a paltry, quibbling evasion when they pretend that the Jews were forbidden to use them on account of their proneness to superstition, as if a prohibition which the Lord founds on his own eternal essences and the uniform course of nature could be restricted to a single nation. Besides, when Paul refuted the error of giving a bodily shape to God, he was addressing not Jews, but Athenians. Section 3. It is true that the Lord occasionally manifested his presence by certain signs, so that he was said to be seen face to face, but all the signs he ever employed were in apt accordance with the scheme of doctrine, and at the same time gave plain intimation of his incomprehensible essence. For the cloud and smoke and flame, though they were symbols of heavenly glory, Deuteronomy 4.11, curbed men's minds as with a bridle, that they might not attempt to penetrate farther. Therefore even Moses to whom of all men God manifested himself most familiarly, was not permitted, though he prayed for it, to behold that face, but received for answer that the refulgence was too great for man. Exodus 33.20 The Holy Spirit appeared under the form of a dove, but as it instantly vanished, who does not see that in this symbol of a moment the faithful were admonished to regard the Spirit as invisible, to be contented with His power and grace, and not call for any external figure. God sometimes appeared in the form of a man, but this was in anticipation of the future revelation in Christ, and therefore did not give the Jews the least pretext for setting up a symbol of deity under the human form. The mercy seat also, Exodus twenty-five, seventeen, eighteen, and 21, where under the law God exhibited the presence of his power, was so framed as to intimate that God is best seen when the mind rises in admiration above itself. The cherubim with outstretched wings shaded and the veil covered it, while the remoteness of the place was in itself a sufficient concealment. It is therefore mere infatuation to attempt to defend images of God and the saints by the example of the cherubim. For what, pray, did these figures mean, if not that images are unfit to represent the mysteries of God, since they were so formed as to cover the mercy seat with their wings, thereby concealing the view of God, not only from the eye, but from every human sense and curbing presumption? To this we may add that the prophets depict the seraphim, who are exhibited to us in a vision, as having their faces veiled, thus intimating that the refulgence of the divine glory is so great that even the angels cannot gaze upon it directly, while the minute beams which sparkle in the face of angels are shrouded from our view. Moreover, all men of sound judgment acknowledge that the cherubim in question belong to the old tutelage of the law. It is absurd, therefore, to bring them forward as an example for our age. For that period of puerility, if I may so express it, to which such rudiments were adapted, has passed away. And surely it is disgraceful 
that heathen writers should be more skillful interpreters of Scripture than the papists. Juvenal holds up the Jews to derision for worshipping the thin clouds and firmament. This he does perversely and impiously. Still, in denying that any visible shape of deity existed among them, he speaks more accurately than the papists, who prate about there having been some visible image. In the fact that the people every now and then rushed forth with boiling haste in pursuit of idols, just like water gushing forth with violence from a copious spring, let us learn how prone our nature is to idolatry, that we may not, by throwing the whole blame of a common vice upon the Jews, be led away by vain and sinful enticements to sleep the sleep of death. Section 4 To the same effect are the words of the psalmist, Psalms 115.4 and 135.15. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. From the materials of which they are made, he infers that they are not gods, taking it for granted that every human device concerning God is a dull fiction. He mentions silver and gold rather than clay or stone, that neither splendor nor cost may procure reverence to idols. He then draws a general conclusion that nothing is more unlikely than that gods should be formed of any kind of inanimate matter. Man is forced to confess that he is but the creature of a day. See Book 3, Chapter 9, Section 2. And yet would have the metal which he has deified to be regarded as God. Whence had idols their origin, but from the will of man? There was ground, therefore, for the sarcasm of the heathen poet. I was once the trunk of a fig tree, a useless log, when the tradesman, uncertain whether he should make me a stool, etc., chose rather that I should be a god. In other words, an earth-born creature, who breathes out his life almost every moment, is able by his own device to confer the name and honor of deity on a lifeless trunk. But as that Epicurean poet, in indulging his wit, had no regard for religion, without attending to his jeers or those of his fellows, let the rebuke of the prophet sting, nay cut us to the heart, when he speaks of the extreme infatuation of those who take a piece of wood to kindle a fire, to warm themselves, bake bread, roast or boil flesh, and out of the residue make a god, before which they prostrate themselves as suppliants. Isaiah 44.16 Hence the same prophet, in another place, not only charges idolaters as guilty in the eye of the law, but upbraids them for not learning from the foundations of the earth, nothing being more incongruous than to reduce the immense and incomprehensible deity to the stature of a few feet. And yet experience shows that this monstrous proceeding, though palpably repugnant to the order of nature, is natural to man. It is, moreover, to be observed that by the mode of expression which is employed, every form of superstition is denounced. Being works of men, they have no authority from God. Isaiah 2.8, 31.7 Hosea 14.3, and Micah 5.13. And therefore it must be regarded as a fixed principle 
that all modes of worship devised by man are detestable. The infatuation is placed in a still stronger light by the psalmist, Psalm 115.8, when he shows how aid is implored from dead and senseless objects, by beings who have been endued with intelligence for the very purpose of enabling them to know that the whole universe is governed by divine energy alone. But as the corruption of nature hurries away all mankind collectively and individually into this madness, the Spirit at length thunders forth a dreadful imprecation. They that make them are like unto them, so is every one that trusteth in them. And it is to be observed that the thing forbidden is likeness, whether sculptured or otherwise. This disposes of the frivolous precaution taken by the Greek church. They think they do admirably because they have no sculptured shape of deity, while none go greater lengths in the licentious use of pictures. The Lord, however, not only forbids any image of himself to be erected by a statuary, but to be formed by any artist whatever, because every such image is sinful and insulting to his majesty.